Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, me. I'll be joined by my friend and colleague Eleanor Harvey to discuss my new book, Carlton Watkins, Making the West American, a new biography of the most influential American artist of the 19th century and that century's greatest photographer to boot. Watkins is best known for his pictures of Yosemite Valley and the nearby Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias, pictures that were made right at the outset of the American Civil War. Watkins's pictures helped shape America's and the world's idea of the West and helped make the West a full participant in the Union and then the nation. His pictures of California, Oregon, and Nevada, as well as modern-day Washington, Utah, and Arizona, not only introduced entire landscapes to America, but were important to the development of American business, finance, agriculture, government policy, painting, and science. The last major Watkins retrospective was held back in 1999. It opened at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art before traveling to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the National Gallery of Art. Can't do much better than that. My interlocutor is Eleanor Harvey, the senior curator at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Her most recent major exhibition was The Civil War in American Art. We featured that show on the program back in 2012. Eleanor is presently working on an exhibition about Alexander von Humboldt's influence on American art and culture. As ever, we'll have links on manpodcast.com from which you can purchase Watkins. Amazon lists it for $23. We'll also have links to buying it at UC Press and IndieBound. A couple of quick website notes before we get to the program. My new author website, tylergreenbooks.com, has information on Watkins and more. You can also go to carltonwatkins.com to see images, about 450 of them, of the art discussed in my new book. Eleanor Harvey and I, after the break. On the opening night of the exhibition Sally Mann, A Thousand Crossings at the Getty Museum, Renowned photographer Sally Mann discusses her book Hold Still, a memoir with photographs. Named one of the best books of 2015 by the New York Times, Washington Post, and National Public Radio, Hold Still reveals her fascination with family, mortality, and the landscape of the American South. Get tickets and learn more about this free November 16th event at getty.edu 360. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velazquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a WEX Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Hi there, this is Eleanor Harvey. I'm the senior curator at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and I'm sitting in Tyler Green's seat. He's sitting in my seat, and I'd like to welcome to his own podcast. Good morning, Tyler. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> so the shoe's on the other foot today. I'm kind of looking forward to this. But first of all, I really want to congratulate you. I have just finished reading your book, Carlton Watkins, Making the West American. And I have to say, it's an extraordinary achievement. I'm, I'm deeply impressed with what you pulled off here. I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is what inspired this. You're dealing with a photographer whose images are instantly recognizable, or at least the Yosemite ones are. I think the rest of his career might be a revelation to the vast majority of us. But what I'm curious to know is, given this vast hole in the middle of what we know about Watkins, what made you decide to tackle this? You know, in my writing as a critic for all those years, I was always interested in places where artists engaged and indeed often impacted the world around them. 
And and as I was looking for a book to write in, in the early 2010s, as I wanted to get out of criticism and journalism, because I just didn't feel like it was a place that fit my interests at that point. You know, I was looking for an artist who who wasn't just important within the art history silo, but an artist who was important in history. And and I wanted to write a book that was a work of history that had an artist at its heart. And then in, what, 2011 or 2012, the Getty published this magnificent catalog resume of Watkins's 1,300 or so mammoth plate pictures. Those are the really big ones, about two feet by, by you know, over, over a foot and a half. The biggest pictures anyone in the world was making. And and so, you know, the Getty sent me a couple copies of this, and I almost literally did my back out trying to lift the box of it. And as I went through the book over the course of a week or so, I kind of very quickly realized that that this book, which was written by Weston Neff, a curator at the Getty, and Christine Holt-Lewis, who's, who's, who now teaches at Berkeley and is a curator at the Bancroft Library there, that this book made a biography possible, that by laying out the oeuvre for the first time that I was I had been handed a document that laid out the most important primary source material for the artist, given the hole to which you referred. And the hole to which you referred is mostly the 1906 earthquake and fire that destroyed half or two-thirds of San Francisco. And along with it, you know, an enormous percentage of our of, of the historical documentation of of the history of the entire American West from from you know 1848 through through 1906, and of course there had been another earthquake in San Francisco in 1868 that also destroyed material. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because as a historian and an art historian, every time I hear the words fire and earthquake, I just die inside. And reading the opening and closing of your book, where you deal with the San Francisco earthquake almost brought me to tears. It was a moment where I just felt that loss and I felt so badly for the, you know, Jane Stanford's curator who was just on the cusp of making your book irrelevant as it would have turned out potentially, but at least it would have saved so much material and a reputation and probably rewritten the course of photographic history. Yeah, there's no artist of Watkins's level in American history about whom so little survives. I mean, I think we have, what, 18 or 20 documents in his own hand. Almost all of those are just kind of letters to his wife from one trip in 1880 complaining about the heat in Arizona. I mean, we have virtually no textual material by him at all. Which is interesting because what that really forced you to do is become what I think of as a forensic historian looking in ancillary locations for evidence, triangulating who knew who and who might have been in the same room and where you might find an account of that. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you shaped the approach to the way you wrote this book. Yeah, I mean, I I, I knew from the moment I went through that Getty Mammoth Plate book that the pictures themselves were going to have to be the most important documents. Because with a photographer, even though the book is really not very much about photography, that because Watkins was a photographer, his pictures are, you know, specifically put him in specific places at specific times. And for a, an historian or a biographer, that's pretty cool. That's pretty good. But as for the rest of it, I, I fairly early in the process came upon the strategy of of kind of building lists of everybody who who bought a Watkins, who knew a Wat, who knew Watkins, everybody who referenced him in letters, anything I could find of people who had relationships with. So I, I, I came up with this strategy of kind of building Venn diagrams almost of, of, of people in the Watkins orbit and then taking special note of where they intersected. You know, what did it mean that the California Geological Survey scientists were sending Watkins pictures, you know, by the bushel full to Asa Gray at Harvard, you know, trying to understand these areas where Watkins overlapped with other people. And, and that which was really the only way I think a book like this could be written. I mean, one of the things that do, did help is, you know, in the, so the gold rushes is, is 48, 49, 50 ish. Watkins gets to California in either very late 49 or early 50, probably early 50, and begins making his mature work in like 60, 1860. And then he's active as, as, as an artist until the early 1890s. So across that entire stretch, a great number of people 
who moved to California eventually move back to wherever they came from, especially prominent wealthy people, prominent wealthy people who are buying Watkins's work. So as the scientists or investors who collected Watkins's work in California, Frederick Law Olmsted, Frederick Billings, people like that, moved back east, they took their papers with them, their, the letters, their correspondence, their diaries. And so I was able to, to mine that stuff. I mean, I did almost as much research in the east as I did in the west. That makes total sense. But I think what you also managed to do was to do what you had mentioned to me earlier that Simon Shama was able to do in the introduction to Landscape and Memory, which was ground things in experience so that in effect what you are doing with Watkins is you are recreating his world and figuring out how to situate him in it. And that the burden of proof then is a matter of how do you dispel reasonable doubt in the absence of a footnote when you have, in fact, overwhelming circumstantial evidence that makes it a common sense conclusion where Watkins was, who he's interacting with, and how that network matters. Yeah, and it's a strategy biographers have, have used before. In, in art, Robert Hughes does that in his Goya biography, which I think is magnificent. Sheila Hale's Titian biography, another artist of whom you know virtually no textual material survives, and her book is 826 pages long. So it, it, it can be done, but as an historian, you have to really just hoover up everything about time and place as you can so that little fragments you might find might lead you down trails. You know, in the process of, of researching the book, I realized that Watkins was on the team that discovered the first glacier in North America on, on Mount Shasta in, in extreme northern California. And in the process of learning about glaciers in early American science, I realized that there was a point after Watkins returns to San Francisco from Shasta that probably only two or three people in all of the West and maybe only a dozen people in all of America had ever stood on a glacier. And this happens to be about the time when Watkins meets John Muir and, and you know, with whom he became fast and very close friends. So understanding some of that peripheral minutiae detail really helped me find relationships and and work that, that was important. And then, of course, Watkins' great, very famous picture of, of Agassiz Rock or Agassiz Column from 1878 to 81-ish that's at the Getty that, that might be the greatest thing Watkins ever did. Understanding Watkins and Glacier and his relationship with Muir helped me understand what I think that picture is, which is a, a single photograph documentation of Muir's theory of glaciation and how it formed Yosemite. And I thought you made a compelling point about that. I, I liked the way you in particular ended that chapter where you talked about the theory of Yosemite's formation as put forth by John Muir, who is an amateur but a, a very astute geologist, being one of the greatest achievements of 19th century American science. And this is perhaps the greatest achievement of 19th century American art in the service of that. What also struck me about that was when you started talking about process. And that seemed to be part of a larger concept that you, I thought it's a very compelling term, visual intelligence. And I want to dive into that a little bit because I think at the core of what makes Watkins interesting is your point that when you compare his work to those of other photographers who went to the same places, either before he went there or after he went there, that it is during the process of comparison that you begin to really understand just how powerfully and visually literate and, and compelling Watkins's choices are about where he stands and when he waits for the light and how he is calculating the exposure. And your point about how by the time he works on Agassiz Rock, he's still dealing with the business of photography that can now get detail from foreground to background rather than a dark foreground and then a silvered out background as atmosphere takes its toll on the plate's ability to capture it. And that as a result, Watkins has to wait for the right light and be in exactly the right place in order to compose that photograph. And I thought your sense of how to read Watkins's photographs was one of the strongest assets for the book. You know, just as photography as a medium is technologically advancing now, the same thing was happening in in Watkins's time. And and you know, so he 
comes along, you know, fairly early, not at the beginning, but fairly early in, in the wet plate collodion era, the period when you had to capture an image on a seven pound, in his case, glass plate. But, but yeah, the Agassiz rock picture is an example of his keeping up with, with the changes in his medium, really. On, on, on the website for the book, carltonwatkins.com, where, where readers and anyone interested can see the images of 450 or something pictures that are in the book, I, I include pictures of what other photographers were doing when they visited Agassiz Rock between, you know, 1880 and 1910 or something. And, and you can see how enormously different it is from what Watkins did. And what, one reason is, is Watkins composed images better than any American artist before or since. He is the greatest compositionist we've ever had. And, and I think this picture manifests that in the sense that, that Watkins, and, and why it manifests itself, is Watkins is thinking of things outside the camera when he's making the picture. He, he has other things he wants us to see. And, and in this example, when you compare what Muir writes in, you know, what year is it, 72, 71, something like that, in, in, his, in his explanation of his theory of how glaciers formed Yosemite, published in all places of the New York, in the New York Post, <laughs> In the book, I, I line up how Muir writes about glaciers in Yosemite, and I compare it to what Watkins does in this picture. And I think they line up pretty precisely. I think Watkins is using Agassiz Rock to point us, literally to point us, to what Muir was talking about and doing it within a picture that holds together independently as, as a work of art. I think the interesting thing is I, I absolutely agree that of all of the photographers working during this time period— Watkins has them beat when it comes to understanding how to compose and visualize given the limitations of what he's dealing with. I mean, the fact with Agassiz Rock, he hides a tree. He's not cutting it down the way he did at Multnomah Falls, which I thought was great because, of course, Church cuts down trees in South America because his predecessor, Alexander von Humboldt, cut down trees in South America in order to get to the base of Tecandama Falls. We're not immune to altering the landscape in order to get it the way we want it. But I thought that the deftness of understanding that Watkins had instead tucked the tree behind it speaks to a kind of careful, strategic approach that we as point-and-shoot photographers probably just completely miss. Yeah, yeah. I know he was, he's a guy who, I mean, he took over 1,300, maybe it's up to 1,400 by now, mammoth plate pictures. It's just an impossible number. But I mean, the, but the sheer volume of output, I mean, here's a guy who is active and at the top of his game for, for 30 years. And in 19th century America, you know, we can almost count the number of, of major artists who had, you know, 32 or 34 or whatever your career is on one or two hands. Yeah. When you talked about the tree being tucked behind Agassiz Point, what that reaffirmed for me is you probably wore out at least one pair of hiking boots researching <laughs> this book. I went to a lot of places. I, I, I went to, uh, I went up and down the Columbia River Gorge between Oregon and, and Washington out, out east of Portland where Watkins made just a magnificent series of work in 1867 and to which he returned in the early to mid-1880s. Shasta, certain parts of the Sierra. I didn't go to Yosemite for the book. Bakersfield and Kern County, San Francisco. Yeah, all all over. And it was definitely helpful. I mean, one of the, one of the great underknown bodies of work Watkins made was in 1879 in the central Sierra, a little bit southwest of Tahoe, of Lake Tahoe. And he does it because a friend of his, a scientist named George Davidson, is trying to build a map, the most detailed map ever ever made in the United States. So Watkins goes there to help out Davidson, who who is is stuck making this map in this incredibly difficult landscape, the most difficult landscape in, in, in America, really, for what he's doing. And one of the places Watkins goes is this uh, mountain called Round Top. Round Top is not the most beautiful mountain in America. It's it's kind of it looks kind of like a gumdrop. But on one side of it, the side facing San Francisco, there's about a 3,500-foot sheer drop. It has extraordinary prominence. You can, on a, on a clear day in the 19th century, you could see clear up to Mount Shasta, you know, a couple hundred miles away from the top of Round Top. And so I hiked up there to just to kind of get a sense of, you know, it's about 10,500 feet. It's not, a, it's not a difficult hike. And then when I got up there, it got a lot more difficult. The wind whips like crazy up there. 
because it's so exposed and so prominent. And the uh, ridge at the top of the mountain is maybe, you know, a foot and a half to four feet across most of the mountain. It's really precarious. I'm a pretty big guy, and I still found myself doing a lot of it on hands and knees. And yet Watkins is up there in 1879 making what are some of the very few, very, very few pictures in the American tradition taken from the top of a mountain. And I mean photographic or painting tradition. And and these are some of the most amazingly ordered, magnificent landscapes in our history. And, you know, I thought they were pretty cool looking before I went up there. But once I was up there and, you know, saw that I, I just, you know, at times couldn't stand or I was going to get blown over. And I was there at about the same time of year Watkins was, although, of course, the climate is different now. But it just I, I, it just left me in awe of how a guy with a big 30 or 40 or 50 pound unwieldy camera with hundreds of pounds of chemicals. I mean, I, I you know, it sounds cliched, but I don't fully understand how he did it. I mean, I really don't fully understand how he did it, but he obviously did. So, yeah, hiking, hiking around was was. Uh, yeah, there was I, I got to have some fun while I was doing it. <laughs> I suspect that given that photographers by this time do think of themselves as artists, describe themselves as artists, Watkins working in mammoth plate format is creating images that he specifically wants framed and hanging on the walls, not necessarily viewed flat in a case or, I mean, I know a number of them are pasted into albums, but the point is the control that he exerts through his gallery over presenting them as framed images essentially asserts that they are as significant accomplishments as a painting. There, there, there is no photographer of the era in Europe or in the United States who is more self-consciously assertive about photograph, making photographs that compete with and engage with painting than, than Carlton Watkins. In 1861, before he goes to Yosemite, in late 1860 and 1861, before he goes to Yosemite, he designs and probably builds the largest camera in the world. Um, it would remain the largest camera in the world until 1867 or so. And, and to the best of my knowledge, no one over the course of Watkins's career worked with a bigger one. And, and Watkins's career lasts into the 1890s. Watkins wants to work big, not because he needs a big camera to capture the big West, but because from the very beginning probably influenced by his friend and mentor Thomas Starr King, a Boston-born preacher and friend of Emerson, a transcendentalist who, who brings, is really the first intellectual in California. Watkins wants to make images that are informed by painting, informed by painters, both what he's seen, but also by his relationships with painters. He's all about measuring up his work and his medium to, to the classic thing, to painting. And so one of the ways, as you mentioned, this manifests itself is in how he insists on the work being presented. It was common in the 1850s and 1860s for photographs to be presented in glass cases. You know, you would walk into a, a space and walk up to a glass case and look down through the top of it, into it, and see photographs lying flat. And you go, oh, that's cool. I would like to buy this one and that one. Watkins uh, wants none of that. So we have lots of pictures, both by Watkins and by others, of, of his work installed. He's putting them in frames, just like you'd have paintings in frames. He's hanging them on walls, just as you would hang paintings. And he is insistent upon this throughout his, you know, from the very first exhibitions of his work in 1862. You know, one of the things that we have lost, and that I would love to know, the first exhibition of his work in the United States is in December of 1862, in the middle of the Civil War, during the Battle of Fredericksburg, or just after news of the disaster that was the Battle of Fredericksburg, arrives in New York City. And as the news of the battle is arriving in New York City, there is an exhibition at Goupil's, kind of the gagosian of its day, in, in New York. And on, on one wall are Watkins's Yosemite pictures from 1861. And on the other wall, apparently, possibly facing the Watkinses is Frederick Church's Under Niagara, a painting he had made to respond to what was going on in the war, um, and, and his first painting of Niagara Falls since the famous 1857 painting that was at the Corcoran and that the National Gallery uh, whisked away. Did Watkins know that he was sending his photographs to be installed on a wall opposite the man who was then considered the greatest painter in America? We don't know. I wish we knew.
the artist is sometimes the last person to know how they're going to be installed. I'm thinking of the 1864 sanitary fair where Church and Bierstadt realized that they're going to be facing off against each other when they have spent their entire careers to date avoiding just such a circumstance. Eleanor Harvey and I will be back after a break. Bruce Nauman Disappearing Acts is now on view at both the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan and MoMA PS1 in Queens. Experience Nauman's command of a tremendous range of mediums, from drawing, photography, and sculpture, to performance, neon, film, and large-scale installations in a major retrospective of his 50-year career. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Guggenheim Museum in New York rewrites art history this fall with the first major U.S. exhibition of groundbreaking Swedish artist Hilma Off Klint. Discover this little-known pioneer of abstraction through more than 165 of her bold and radical paintings and works on paper, described by New York Magazine as, quote, some of the most beguilingly uncanny and imaginative works of the last century. Also on view, a new body of paintings created by contemporary artist R.H. Quaitman, inspired by Off Klint. Plan your visit to this exploration of radical abstraction, two artists one century apart, at Guggenheim.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Now back to my conversation with Eleanor Harvey. The issue of the role that Watkins and those Yosemite photographs play in our understanding of how art and artistic agency shapes the way we think about the Civil War, shapes the way we think about the function of the West, the arguments over California statehood, over all of that, you sum it up with a term that I wonder if you coined called cultural unionism. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's mine. So far, the reception to the idea from critics and historians has been about as, as, as good as I could have hoped. For, for years, really for decades, the story that photography curators and historians have told is that Lincoln and probably some senators saw Watkins's 1861 Yosemite pictures, thought they were so great that they had to save Yosemite and preserve it, and it was done. I have always, from the day I read that story, probably 15 years ago, thought that it was a really thin story. The most radical legislation Lincoln signs, or maybe the second most radical, is the Yosemite Bill. Landscape conservation was an idea that existed nowhere in the world in 1864 when Lincoln signs the bill. It's just a totally unprecedented thing. And here in the middle of the Civil War, with Lincoln's reelection unlikely at that point, with Washington completely consumed by, by something else, five or six pictures make everybody stop for a couple of days and you know, in different parts of the city. And and do something no one had ever thought to do before, and that's how it happened. And I I had never I had always thought that that was a preposterously thin, uncomplicated story. And and even though that's a preposterously thin, uh, uncomplicated story, there are those in Watkinsia who think and thought that Yosemite's kind of been done and has has been overvalued in Watkins Watkins's oeuvre and career. And so one of the things I, I wanted to do from the start was to reopen that story, how Yosemite happened and what Watkins had to do with it. Well, it needs to be recomplicated because it's too easy and flat the way it's been pitched to us. So that meant, you know, not doing art history. That meant doing history history. And, and so I just read everything I could about late antebellum and early Civil War period California and realized that what had happened was... So I think people... You know, my father went to high school in 
California and you know he didn't know this stuff that California was really close to to seceding in in 60 and 61. California was politically aligned with the South throughout the 1850s. The Democratic Party repeatedly tried to allow slavery into the state to try to split California into two so that there could be a slave Southern California and a free Northern California. California was in lockstep with the South over the course of the 1850s. In 1859, in California's gubernatorial election in you know September, whatever it was, the Republican candidate earns only 9% of the vote, and he's so irrelevant that San Francisco's major daily newspaper in its, in its daily updates to the vote tally doesn't even spell his name right for the first three days after the election. Um, his name is Leland Stanford, um, the famous Leland Stanford, and they, they got, you know, they, they who, who became famous, and in the newspapers, his name is Sanford. So, so California is going away. And and along comes, I mean, the whole story is in the book, or a good chunk of the story anyway is in the book. But what, what happens is a, a, a co-founder of the California Republican Party named Edward Baker, a, a, an old friend of Abraham Lincoln's from Illinois, makes a speech 10 days before the 1860 presidential election in which he says, California, you, there are lots of good reasons why, why you Californians should vote for Lincoln and thus effectively vote to remain in the union. There, there's, you know, the Republican Party will deliver to you the transcontinental railroad that the Democrats have long promised and never, never done anything about. We're on the right side of immigration. We're on the right side of, of giving land to white people. Well, he also talks about what you're talking about, the cultural unionism of who writes your poetry, who writes your books, who provides your images. And it's all coming in his words from the North. Yeah. So Baker, Baker goes through this litany of stuff and, you know, gets applause. But it's but the biggest applause line of this speech is when he suggests to California a bunch of backwards miners, grubby people that the East didn't have any use for, people who went West to have opportunities that were not available to them in the East. When Baker says it's the North who writes America's poetry and history and makes its art, and you should aspire to participate in that. And the place goes nuts. All of the, you know, the newspapers of the time are all kind of amazed by this. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by it. And Thomas Stark King, this Emerson acolyte who is watching Baker's speech from the box of Jesse Benton Fremont, the wife, uh, campaign manager and co-author of her husband, John C. Fremont's career in books. Fremont was the Republican nominee in 1856. Stark King turns to Jesse and says, oh, how I wish I could move men like that. And almost immediately, and, 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 you know, uh, five weeks later, Stark King's, eight famous essays about his 1860 visit to Yosemite in the Mariposa Grove of Giant Sequoias begin to land in the Boston Evening Transcript, the most important mainstream newspaper, you know, slightly radical, but not very radical newspaper in New England. And what seems to have happened is that Star King heard Baker's call and he's like, I can, I'm the guy he's talking to. I'm the guy who can link the West to Northern culture. My best friends are poets and painters you know, Whittier and, and Emerson and, and uh, William Cullen Bryant, who threw Star King's going away party in New York. Star King recognizes himself and what Baker says and begins this project of creating culture that will bind the West, which seems ready to go, go along with the South, to the North and to the Union, to the North's greatest tradition, which is landscape. It is almost certainly Star King who, who encourages Watkins to Yosemite. Star King writes about the place himself. Over the next three or four years, Star King organizes a series of, of, of lectures and poetry exchanges between the North and the West. I think that the record is is clear as it can be, given 1868 and 1906, that, that there was a, a concerted plan of cultural unionism to bind the West to the North and thus to union, because politics at that point for Republicans was, was a failure, wasn't getting it done. Culture was the only way to go. There is an interesting nexus between Star King and William Cullen Bryant that still needs to be teased out because Bryant is running one of the leading abolitionist newspapers, Alexander Hamilton's New York Evening Post. He is the mouthpiece for the transcendentalists who will all be abolitionists. He is influencing the Eastern landscape painters. And that connection to Star King, the fact that he plays such a strong role in Star's life and his rise in the West, that nexus between the two of them has never really been put into focus and into equilibrium. 
there, you know, we, we were talking about these Venn diagrams of, of, of influence and relationships earlier, and this is one of the, the best examples. So at the time, Thomas Dark King leaves the Northeast for, for San Francisco in the spring of 1860. He's one of the most famous men in the Northeast. He's maybe only the second or third or fourth most important church leader in, in Boston, but he, he publishes widely. He'd written a best-selling book about the White Mountains. Star King was a total landscape nut, total nature nut. And the guy who throws his going away party attended by hundreds of people, all of the intellectual luminaries of the time in New York is Bryant. This is the same Bryant who, whose uh, campaign for Central Park in New York uh, resulted in the, in the park that Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox designed and built. And then what, what, what happens a few years later uh, at the end of the Civil War, Olmsted goes to California to run what had been the Fremont's gold mine estate in the foothills of the Sierra, near Yosemite, quite near Yosemite. In fact, from Mount Josephine on the Fremont's gold mining estate, you could look 30 miles to the east and into the valley. Olmsted goes to run that. When the gold mine goes bust, Olmsted is in California, and he you know, becomes one of the most prominent um, advocates for Watkins' work and collectors in between running Central Park and and moving to California, Olmsted was what we would now call the executive director of the United States Sanitary Commission, which was the massive union charity that was the Red Cross of its day. And Star King was the largest single fundraiser for the U.S. Sanitary Commission. And Jesse Benton Fremont was deeply involved with the selection of the art that went into the auction. Yeah, and so was and so was Olmsted. I mean, Olmsted, as as fairs happen in Chicago and New York and Cincinnati and wherever else, Olmsted is asking his friends like Bryant, like Bierstadt, like Watkins, to to send their work to these fairs. So there is there there is this you know Bryant, Star King, Henry Whitney Bellows, Olmsted. Uh, Watkins intersection that is important to the careers of all of them, not just to Watkins. Well, you know, it's funny because you had folded into that, you know, the relationships and the rivalries between people like Bierstadt and Moybridge and Virgil Williams and the others who are sort of competing with all of that. And um, I remember that Bierstadt had painted a couple of things at uh, Woodward's Gardens, which was in the Mission District, on the site of one of John C. Fremont's former homes at Mission and 14th Street. Kind of the amusement park, theme park, garden, gallery of its day. Exactly. Um, But it also has a natural history museum and an art gallery. And Moybridge is the photographer. Virgil Williams and Bierstadt are the painters. And from 1865 through the 1880s, I'm wondering if that doesn't create the kind of competitive edge that would have potentially driven some space between Watkins and Bierstadt and Moybridge if you have two competing enterprises, both of whom are focused intermittently on Yosemite. Watkins, as best we can tell, which is not particularly well, was a bit of a cantankerous codger. He seems not not, not to have gotten along particularly well with any of his local peers slash competitors. Lots of artists, painters, and photographers both have left written evidence that they traveled to California, and one of the first things they did was to go see Watkins's gallery. The photographers invariably write that Watkins was generous with advice and really helped them. In fact, one of those photographers then goes and really kind of introduces large format photography to Japan, sort of. But, but Bierstadt and Moybridge are two particular cases. Bierstadt sees that exhibition of Watkins's pictures at Goupil's during the Civil War in 1862, and that's when he decides to go to California and Yosemite. Bierstadt had been trying to get out into the further west, if you will, for, for some time. The Civil War had basically blocked it, but, but Yosemite he could get to because he didn't need anybody's permission to travel through contested territory. He could get there on a boat. Uh, Bierstadt goes, goes to Yosemite. Goes to California, sees more of Watkins's pictures in San Francisco upon his arrival. He sees them at Thomas Dark King's house, in fact, or Thomas Dark King's rooms at the Occidental Hotel, in fact. And Bierstadt seems to have purchased all of them and, and then never paid Watkins for them, you know, just kind of welched on the bill. And, and, he, and he seems likely to have done this again in 1865 or 1866. I forget who, but somebody intercedes on Watkins's behalf with Bierstadt and says, you know, this is a pretty shady thing to do. And Bierstadt makes makes up for it by paying for Watkins's uh, space at the Paris World's Fair in 1867. Watkins wins a medal there. Um, he has the largest space of any photographer. But but at the 
but the but the welching and the you know the the the, the frenemy die was cast when Bierstadt returns to California for a couple of years in the 1870s. There's no indication that they even talked, but they certainly talk in their work. I mean, there's no and and, and Watkins definitely notices. There are lots of trees, for example, individual trees in Bierstadt's Yosemite paintings and thereafter that are, and, and of other subjects that are just lifted right out of Watkins' pictures. There are points of view that are lifted right out of Watkins' oeuvre. There are um, engagements with specific features and specific ways in, in, in Yosemite that, are, are that, that Bierstadt paints, including a, a picture of uh, a waterfall in Yosemite that's now at the Met. That's right out of a beer sta- That's right out of a Watkins picture, and then of course there's an example in the book late in actually both of their careers, in which maybe it's like seventy three, seventy four, seventy five, that Bierstadt makes this what what ended up being his largest painting. It's now at the St. Johnsbury Athenaeum in northern Vermont, and it is worth the visit. The domes of Yosemite. It is his biggest painting. It fairly recently went back on view after after several years of conservation. It is an amazing thing. And, and and really is one of the best things he ever did. And like all beer stats, it's a slight exaggeration of where things actually are. It's not as fantastical as as some of his silliest fantasies. But one of once Bierstadt finished the painting, one of his aspirations for it was to have it made into the largest chromolithograph colored print ever made in the United States. Now whether it is the largest or not, I don't know. But 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 he thought it was going to be. He wanted it to be. And at some point, Watkins sees this in in. San Francisco and realizes because he has this kind of spatial intelligence that is off the charts. He 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 knew exactly the point of view Bierstadt was painting, where 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 the painter was meant to be sitting, and he knew how Bierstadt had exaggerated certain parts of it. So the next time Watkins is in Yosemite, he goes and makes a picture of what Bierstadt had shown. Watkins, being a little bit of a showman and a little bit persnickety made this picture by putting by stitching together two pictures and he printed it at exactly the size of Bierstadt's chromolithograph an arched eyebrow saying the real and what i can do is better than what you the painter can imagine it's an extraordinary moment one of my favorite moments in all of american art history and i it was a nice story too because Again, the plausibility of how all of the details fall into place that makes this the obvious common sense outcome of the kind of rivalry between the two of them. And the two mediums. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. The first time I ever saw multiple pictures stitched together, you remember, you do, the exhibition East of the Mississippi. Oh, yeah, at the National Gallery two years ago. Mm-hmm. The William Henry Jackson of the Aqueducts. It took a while for me to find the edges, but I found the bend in the shadows in some of the overhead lines that made me go back through with a photography expert in order to basically understand how he had managed to do two almost perfect side-by-side photographs and then had figured out how to print them so that they looked like one seamless image. I have no idea how common or how uncommon that technique is but that was the first time i had ever seen it later it was easier when you could work faster and and jackson is working a little later yeah that that bierstadt watkins yosemite thing was about maybe my favorite discovery of of the whole book maybe and you mentioned moybridge and stitching pictures together i mean nobody was better at the panorama nobody in america was better at, at at the panorama be it urban or not than than edward moybridge uh, Moybridge was so good at it that Watkins pretty much, you know, with a couple of minor exceptions, left the form alone, chose not to compete with him over it. Watkins and Moybridge know each other as early as like 58-ish, um, 1858, when a uh, somebody who'd commissioned some pictures from Watkins was slow to pay. Watkins sent him a note saying that I'm going to be out of town for a while, but you can leave my money with my friend Moybridge. Moybridge is not in San Francisco throughout the late 1850s, 1860s, he goes back to England at one point. He's bouncing around a bit. So Watkins's career as a professional picture maker under his own name uh, starts in about in, in 1858, so far as we know. And he goes to, you know, the, the landmark Yosemite trip is 61. Um, and then Watkins is, a, is is busy as a bee thereafter. Moybridge does not emerge as a, a maker of images, maker of pictures in California, really until 1867. So for the first 
you know, six to eight years of Watkins's career, while there are other photography galleries in San Francisco, and indeed Watkins's success prompts more to open, Watkins's success both commercially and artistically, I should say, prompt more to open. Moybridge doesn't become a, I mean, I don't really want to use the word rival because he really wasn't a factor until 67 uh, when, when Moybridge begins to go to Yosemite. And he's, you know, it takes Moybridge a while to figure out how he can compete with Watkins. I mean, you know, a Watkins Moybridge buddy show has never been done a la Matisse Picasso, right? And, and, and the Moybridge oeuvre is less known in its totality and has never been published in its totality as Watkins's have. But I'm pretty confident that there are places in the oeuvre where Moybridge is absolutely riffing on Watkins. And there are one or two examples much later on of where Watkins addresses Moybridge pictures. But for the most part, they were, I mean, Watkins was the guy in San Francisco. You know, his pictures were so well known that other photography galleries would send lesser lights to places Watkins had been to remake his compositions. Such was his status in, in the market and artistically. And Moybridge was better than those places, but, but he, he was still very definitely a second banana. There's another element to your book that I found a pleasant surprise and one that I think reminds us that we don't just pursue topics for pure intellectual interest. And that's the chapter where you talk about your family. And I was curious to know, at what point in your research did you have that conversation with your dad where you discover that the green in your name is relevant to Watkins, but that your middle name, Lawrence, is relevant to Watkins. And oh, by the way, one of the guys in your Venn diagrams happens to be what, your great great grandfather? Yeah, uh, this is embarrassing. So I started, I guess, working on the book in 2011, 2012. And, you know, I had dozens of computer files and notebooks full of names and people. And one of the names in one of my notebooks was a guy who I knew only as W.H. Lawrence. So Watkins's career was interrupted about, you know, 55 or 60 percent of the way through by a calamitous economic event in the American West, the collapse of the Bank of California. It, it, it is probably still to this day the most calamitous economic event in the history of the American West. I mean, 1906 is a different kind of thing, right? And as part of the collapse of the, the Bank of California, Watkins lost everything. He lost his gallery, his glass plates, his camera. He lost everything and had to start from scratch. Now, he was a very famous guy on, on both coasts. And in the year after he lost everything, he put together what is probably the most impressive client list of, 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 of commissioned work that any artist has put together before or since. I mean, every wealthy person and corporation in the American West signed up for the Watkins comeback tour. It's just preposterous what he put together. But he still didn't have a gallery again. He still didn't have the capital he needed, you know, which probably would have been in the low thousands of dollars. Well, he might have had the capital, but he didn't have the, the you know, he, here's a guy who to make work and to restock the work that he would sell had to travel, you know, maybe half the year. And so, while he might have had the capital, and given what we know about his his his, his wealth in in the early 1870s, he probably had the capital. But he needed somebody to run run the space, somebody to to put enough money into it that he could hire staff. You know, maybe as many as a dozen or two dozen people. And so, in in the late 1870s, there are pictures in which Watkins's photographic wagon, the stuff in which he hauls around his chemicals and his glass plates says on the side, C.E. Watkins's Yosemite Art Gallery, proprietor W.H. Lawrence. And so, you know, so that's why I had the name W.H. Lawrence on a list of, of things to research. And, and you know, after two or three years, I, I just hadn't made my way to that name yet. It just didn't, you know, he seemed important, but, you know, what was I really going to find? I mean, it just didn't set off alarm bells. There were two, I also knew that there were two W.H. Lawrences in the San Francisco City Directory, and I was dreading having to separate one from the other and figure out which was which. So this was at a time when I was spending a year at the Huntington Library researching the book, and I was, you know, Pasadena at night is about as exciting as, you know, Manhattan, Kansas or something. And I was just bored and figured I'll get the heck out of town and go up to the Bay Area and do a few days of research there. And and uh, I'll invite my father, who lives in Ashland, Oregon, to come down to the Bay Area and take him out to dinner and get some work done and do some family time and get a break from boring Pasadena. 
And so um, I called my father, expecting him to be uh, just delighted to have the opportunity to come see his eldest, smartest, most handsome son. And instead he says, <laughs> haven't you already done all that crap? I mean, are you done going to the Bancroft? You've spent all that time there? And I said, yeah, I mean, I've seen all the Watkins stuff, but well, let me give you an example of what I'm going to go look for. And I told him about seeing pictures with this wagon in them and that I was going to go look up Lawrence. And, and after a few minutes, my father finally says, oh, well, that guy's your great-great-grandfather. And I had spent two and a half or whatever years researching and had never once realized that a major, major, major figure in my subject's career was somebody I was descended from. <laughs> and, 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 and indeed, that two of the major figures in Watkins's career may have been introduced to each other by, 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 by two of my grandfather, two of my great-great-grandfathers. I ended up in the mid, I, I, you know, I, I ended up in just a really weird situation where uh, my family was part of the story, like a big part of the story. So I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, I, mean, I knew I had to research it, so I did a lot, but I didn't know what to do with it. And what kind of guided me to figuring it out is a book written by former New York Times journalist and historian Diane McWhorter, who, who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama during the civil rights era, back when Birmingham was exploding with white supremacists planted bombs all the, all, all, all the time and came to be known as Bombingham. And in researching her history of civil rights era Birmingham, McWhorter discovered that one of the, that the city's most important and biggest bomb maker was her father which she had not known. And so as I was figuring out what to do with how I figured in my book, I used her book as an example of how she figured out how to deal with her family's history while she was writing about something else. I think that's a really important thing for everyone to take away, which is that sometimes the work that we do informs our life and sometimes our life informs our work and we don't know what we're going to run into until we're hip deep in the middle of it. And I think it just reminds us that fundamentally what an incredibly small world it really is. I, I in large measure, uh, wrote this book because of my mother. It was, it was my mother who introduced me to art. It was my mother mostly who introduced me to, to outdoor, the outdoors and forests and mountains. And, and, you know, Watkins was, and my father's a history buff. And so Watkins was kind of this coming together of my personal life and experience, but much more on, 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 on my mother's side. I mean, you know, it's, it's about art, art and landscape. And, and then I was kind of really, you know, and my mother died when I was young. So this book, you know, the whole project was kind of about her. And then halfway, like almost literally halfway through the research, I mean, the writing went on after the research, almost literally halfway through the research, I discovered that, oh, wait, this book is actually about the other side of my family. And uh, yeah, that was weird. The, the one thing I, I'm also struck by, the image on the cover, which is a detail from the view from Round Top that you were talking about earlier, it's a riveting photograph, that sense of a person who is, you know, sort of immersed in the landscape, above the landscape, a part of the landscape, speaks so strongly to all of the themes in this book. I'm curious to know whether or not you chose that. And because sometimes we get into arguments with our publishers about what will sell books versus what actually emotionally resonates with us, which leads me to the second question, which is, what do you most admire about Watkins' work? What work would you take home, all other things being equal? So the book is published by University of California Press. The editor who bought the book for, for UC Press left shortly thereafter for the Getty. But before she left, she lectured me several times, telling me to pick a Yosemite picture for the cover, that Yosemite moved books, that Yosemite had to be the cover. And when a new editor came in, I had had that so drilled into me that when UC Press asked me what I wanted on the cover, I said, well, I think it has to be Yosemite, right? And I was uh, at a tennis tournament in Cincinnati, Ohio that I go to every year when this editor who knew I was on vacation and emailed me and said, it will not be Yosemite on the cover. What do you think of this? And she sent me, she asked me about this picture and sent me the mock-up of what became the cover. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's way better. It's a spectacular. I've been to the place where that guy was standing. I stood where he stood, and ugh, I'm, I'm, I don't do, you know, for somebody who likes climbing up mountains, I don't do great with heights, 
or looking down anyway. And that was a spot. I mean, just looking at the cover gives me shivers a little bit because I, I, you know, it's straight down. <laughs> I guess the picture I, I mean, I knew going into the book that probably the two greatest Watkins pictures were the Agassiz Rock, Agassiz Column picture we talked about earlier, and late late George Kling Peaches, which is a picture of peaches in a box that's at the Huntington and at MoMA and that exists somewhere probably in the collection of either the Library of Congress or the Smithsonian Archives, and no one's not looking for it, hint, hint, uh, to anybody who's listening. But the one I ended up, I don't know, falling in love with or really... Well, think about it from Emerson's standpoint. You know, you mentioned that he kept the ones that mattered the most to him in the room that mattered the most to him. So I'm asking an intensely personal question, I guess, which is, what does your Watkins room look like? So there's a picture that Watkins made at Yosemite in 65 or 66. His, I think probably 65. So this is his second trip to Yosemite. This is after Lincoln has signed the Yosemite Bill. So Lincoln signs the Yosemite Bill in response to the West's cultural unionism. Thomas Starr King has, has quite recently died. I argue in the book that Yosemite was possibly to probably to likely set aside in part as a memorial to Thomas Starr King. And so in 1864, the state of California, which has been given this land by Lincoln, has to figure out what the heck it means to preserve a landscape. Nobody in the world had ever done this. Well, you know, just so happened for the state of California that the foremost thinker on this kind of thing in America was Frederick Law Olmsted, and he happened to be in the state. And he happened to be in business, uh, an investor in the governor, one of the governor of California's brother's businesses. So the governor of California calls up Olmsted and says, hey, can you define this thing for us? And Olmsted says, sure, I'd love to. And he writes a report uh, that is the most important, the first important document in the history of, of global landscape conservation. And the report opens with Watkins. The report opens with how important culture is. It starts with cultural unionism, really, and, and points to Watkins and Bierstadt as being really important to this place and to it being conserved, and then references Watkins and his work repeatedly throughout. And Watkins's work at Yosemite was richly informed by, by, by Emerson, both in terms of the questions of nature and landscape, but also in terms of unionism and build, building metaphors out of the landscape that refer to unionism. The, the historical record does not say, but strongly suggests, that Olmsted, the, the Watkins was present when Olmsted first read a draft of this report to uh, a group assembled in Yosemite in the late summer of 1865. And, I mean, imagine... <laughs> Being a nobody from a nowhere town in the foothills of the Catskill Mountains, going west to try to make something of yourself because there's nothing for you at home in New York State, and succeeding so thoroughly that one of the most famous men in America says you're responsible for, you know, uh, the biggest, one of the biggest ideas to come out of the Civil War. And so Watkins is almost certainly sitting there listening to that. And he almost certainly knows that the next thing Olmsted is going to do when he gets home is to write the governor a letter asking him to name a mountain in Yosemite Valley for Watkins, not for Bierstadt, who wasn't in on the Cultural Unionist Project, who participated in it but wasn't there at the beginning, asking him to name a mountain for Watkins. And, and Governor Frederick Lowe does that, and it's, it's what is now Mount Watkins above Mirror Lake in, in Yosemite Valley. And Watkins takes a picture of it in either 65 or 66, and boy, wouldn't I love to know if, when he made the picture, if he if he knew that the mountain was going to be named after him, if it was the picture that motivated Lowe to name that particular mountain after him. But it's a picture in which Mount Watkins is perfectly reflected in Mirror Lake. It is a picture Watkins had tried to make in 1861, but he didn't have a lens good enough. He tried to make it in stereograph. He'd, he'd made a stereograph called Inverted in the Tide, Stand the Gray Rocks, which is a reference to a, a transcendentalist poem about reflection as a metaphor. It's perfect for the moment in that the union was, was put back together. Transcendentalism, both its poetry and its prose, is full of reference to reflection and unity and the entirety of the whole as being both kind of a reflection of nature, of the supernatural in nature. When the war starts artists and poets all over America flock to these landscape unity union war metaphors. And it is it is a very, very great picture, but it is also really also a visual summary of what had to be 
a remarkable five or six years in, in, in Watkins life where he goes from just being a nobody to being one of the most famous people in the West and one of the most best known artists in America. And it's all there in that picture. And I think it's, again, it gets back to your core point about agency and the ability to shape people and culture and a great work yeah, of art. Yeah, it, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an artwork that, argue, that, that stands as a demonstration that artists have agency. Yeah. Well, I'm delighted that you've also put up on medium.com a post that talks about the books that help shape your thinking and the exhibitions that help shape your vision. And I think that, along with the concordance that you have on your own website with carltonwatkins.org, that there's an opportunity to expand what we understand about Watkins and probably end up expanding our interest in following those threads back to other publications and then looking beyond it for your next project, which the, the nice thing is this book didn't kill your interest in, in writing books. It seems to have anything to have said it. <laughs> Yeah, there there are uh, two. I'm working on two 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 book now announcements probably early next year. Fantastic! It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you on this and discussing with you this book. I can't wait to uh, get you in a bar and grab a beer and we can go argue. <laughs> but it's an inspiring book. I think it's a good read and it teaches me a lot about context as well as the significance and visual power of the images in it. Thank you, Eleanor. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.